to be seated. Amen. Wow. So when we uh, talk about worship here at the chapel, and I'm just reflecting on our season and song this morning, uh, we say that our songs need to be content-driven and corporately singable. Because biblical content drives passion and amazement, which should be the wellspring of worship from our hearts. And I think so this morning you got a good example of what we are saying when we say that, that strong content drives passion and amazement before God, which is at the heart of our worship. So, uh, Carmelo, thank you for uh, leading us this morning into God's presence with passion and amazement. I want to ask you a question this morning, and I, I want you to I, try to resist answering, okay, in, in your own heart, all right? Here's the question. Are you ready to follow Jesus? Now, I'm going to tell you something. My impulsive response is yes. Yes. Uh, God did a work in my heart almost 40 years ago. Uh, He brought out a strong yes. The truth is this. Over time... We wrestle with regaining that answer, right? Life kind of beats us up a little bit at times. Circumstances make it difficult. And we want to say, I am ready to follow Jesus. I am following Jesus. But we know that there is a struggle in that for all of us. So this morning, don't rush to judgment. Don't answer off the cuff. Jesus in the Bible frequently encourages a close thorough evaluation of what it means to follow him, and then he calls us. You might remember in the Gospel of Luke, I believe it's chapter 15, where Luke tells the story through Christ of the builder of a tower. The essence of the story is a man goes off to build a tower, he gets halfway through the construction and doesn't have enough money to finish the job. People walk by and scoff saying he began to build the tower but was unable to complete it. And the, the, the question that's begged in the text, it's a text on the cost of following Christ. If you're going to set out to build a big project, make sure you have enough resources to see it through to completion. The application of that is this. If you're going to follow Jesus, make sure you do a thorough evaluation of what he requires and then make a, an intelligent, informed commitment to follow Christ at all costs. I, uh, I go to the gym on a regular basis, okay? You, you, you're probably glad I'm telling you that because that may not be obvious, okay? Uh, I've made an observation. There are some big people at the gym. I mean, my legs and their arms kind of people, right? I mean, I'm like, these guys are are big. And I'm going to admit, okay, I turned 62 weeks ago. There's part of me that says, I I wouldn't mind looking like that. But then inside of me, there's something that cries out saying, impossible, not going to happen. The truth is, I may admire that, but I am not willing to pay the price that it takes to get there. Okay, so we often, I think, in our lives, we, we admire, but we won't pay the price that is required. 
Most of us admire great accomplishments. We would love to have such achievements in our lives. We admire Olympians. We admire athletes. I admire every person that can play the guitar. As someone who took guitar lessons for two years, I mean, they got the bar chords, realized that I, I couldn't do it. And I gave up. I admire that kind of skill. I admire successful business people. We admire people of notable service, right? That person that sacrifices and gives so much at, at, at great sacrifice for the benefit of others. We admire that, but we are often admiring but unwilling to pay the price that is required to get to where the admired object is. And I think that's very true for all of us in relationship to our walk with Christ. We see as believers the life of other believers that are absolutely and totally committed. We admire the achievements that they experience in Christ, but are often unwilling to pay the price that it takes to get there. The text before us that has a question inside of it, and the question I think is simply this, are you ready to follow Jesus? Am I ready to follow Christ? We're going to see in in, in the experience of John, in the experience of Jesus, and in the experience of the first four disciples that are called, we're going to see a model of how we should respond to Christ and to his call. This account takes place geographically in an interesting way. John is baptizing down just north of the Dead Sea by the Jordan River, south of Jerusalem. I believe it's dug by 16, 17 miles, right? So you go from Jerusalem down to the Jordan River, something like that. Jesus is ministering up in Galilee, all right? And he's, he's, he's been involved in some type of ministry. He leaves northern Galilee in this text and come down, comes down to John to be baptized by John. All right, that's the next step in the text. And then Jesus returns to Galilee to call disciples. Okay, so geographically, you're going to move from Jesus in Nazareth, going down to Jerusalem where John is baptizing, back up to Galilee to call disciples. That'll be the flow of the text. So I want us to look at verse 9 of our text. We're in Mark chapter 1. Doug did a wonderful job last week of introducing us to the story of this gospel. And now we're going to get down into the details. Verse 9 of Mark 1 says this. It says, at that time, that is at the time when John is baptizing down in the south, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. So if you look at a map in the back of your Bible, you have the Dead Sea down south. It's in that area north of it where John is. Jesus is up by the Sea of Galilee, beginning his public ministry. He comes from there down to where John is. Okay, so that's the geographic flow. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. A voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals 
and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. There's a sense in which in that statement, Jesus is beginning to answer the question, what does it require, what does it mean to follow Jesus? All right, so I want us to walk through this text, first looking at the baptism of Christ and then at the temptation of Christ. And we're going to overlay these. First of all, the baptism of Christ, Mark 1, 9 through 11. So the text says, at that time, and that That is setting us up to anticipate that there is a divine appointment that is reflected on in this text. There is a a moment in history that God has ordained for the beginning of something new. The awaited moment. The coming one. Jesus comes to John to be baptized. Now if you... If you read back through the other gospel accounts, particularly the account in the gospel of Matthew, you'll find that when Jesus comes to John to be baptized, John is aware of what he's been saying about Jesus at the beginning of Mark 1. One who is higher than I, Matthew 1. One who existed, or Matthew 3, one who existed before me, higher rank, worthy of praise, can't even untie his sandals, the lowest act of a servant. That one now comes into the presence of John the Baptist and says, John, baptize me. John first expresses reluctance. Jesus overcomes his reluctance and insists because there's something important about the baptism of Christ that relates to our understanding of the good news, the gospel. I want you to first note the contrast between the baptism of all the people that are coming to John and the baptism of Christ. Okay, with the all, it's a group, and every one of them is confessing their sins. When it comes to Christ, the contrast is this. It's no longer a group. It's one, and he has no sin to confess. Okay, so that simple observation distinguishes Jesus Christ from the rest of the people in that story, and therefore the rest of humanity. There is something about Christ that is utterly unique. He has no sin to confess. So why does he partake of the baptism of repentance? A baptism that is triggered by a heart broken over sin. A heart that knows that before God it has rebelled, it has failed, and needs God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. What's the difference between what happens to Jesus here not confessing and those that are confessing? And I think this is the the, the simple picture. Okay, in baptism of Jesus, he is identifying with sinners because one day he will stand in their place on the cross. Okay, the book of Hebrews has a fascinating statement about Jesus. It says he was numbered with transgressors. So if you set up a line of people and you put Jesus in the middle of that line, and you started counting across people, sinner, sinner, sinner. You, you would come to Jesus with a quandary. He is not sinful, but he is counted as sinful on our behalf. Because the Bible says that Tim Hoff's sin, my sin, 
through Calvary, was placed upon the person of Christ. He bore the consequence of my sin in my place for my advantage and for my benefit. So when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, who is practicing a baptism of repentance, for one who has nothing to confess, what's happening? It is Jesus Christ identifying with Sinner. So baptism is Jesus identifying with us. In his baptism, he identifies with rebels. In our baptism, we identify with his death as payment for our sin. You get the difference. In his baptism, he identifies with rebels. He is in their place for them. In our baptism, we identify with his death, burial, and resurrection, which is the picture of baptism for our benefit. Okay, so this idea of Jesus being baptized is very powerful because on the cross, ultimately, Jesus will, in a very deep and personal way, identify with us. It's why in John chapter 1, John the Baptist, pointing to Jesus as he comes toward him, will say this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the only way that Jesus Christ could take away the sin of the world was by bearing it in his body on the tree so that you and I could be forgiven of the consequences that we deserve to pay because they were paid by Jesus Christ when he is trusted as our Lord and Savior. Okay, so this this picture of baptism is that Jesus identifies with us. Now, what happens in verses 10 and 11 show us the authenticity of this moment. It says that as he was coming up out of the water, heaven is torn open, spirit descends like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, you are my son who I love. Now in this setting, what's happening? One thing you realize, if you're a little bit schooled in biblical truth, you notice that this is a reflection of the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead. You have the spirit, fascinating term, the spirit flutters. And if you go back to Genesis 1 verse 2, you will find that God flutters upon the surface of the water in the person of the Spirit in creation. Here, the Spirit of God comes and there's this beginning of the presence of Trinity. Father speaks from heaven, pours out affection, approval, delighting, and doting over the Son. It's a powerful picture. It's like a, if you think of a, of a proud dad who is tempted to say too much about his son, okay? But in this case, there can be no overstatement. And his father rends the heavens and looks down on his son. He, he is moved to praise, to affection, to doting over his son because he knows that the work of the son will result in this saving of lost souls like you and I. I want that just to settle in for you this morning. Jesus identifies with sinners to save them. And as he does that, you'll remember when, when Jesus goes into the, into the Garden of Gethsemane and he, he wrestles with the call of the cross. He wrestles with the suffering and sacrifice that will be required of him. And what does he say? He says, Father, I have come to do your will. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, 
but what you want. And you find this beautiful interaction in the Trinity that is exposed in Mark chapter 1. Father, Son, and Spirit in community. The Son has come to bear the consequence of my sin so that you and I can be invited into that community. Into the fellowship of the Godhead. That's where God is, is moving us through the work of Jesus. And that's why Father overflows out of heaven and Spirit flutters in the presence observing this whole experience. And the Godhead interacting, loving, and predicting, if you will, our invitation into that through the work of Jesus Christ, His Son. C.S. Lewis likens this working of the Trinity to a dance. He talks about how, how within the Godhead there is, there is profound mystery, right? But there is also profound beauty. A, a dance in which one gives and one takes and one moves in one way and one reacts in another way. And there is in that picture a beauty. And through the work of Christ, you and I, according to John 17, this would blow your mind, you and I are being invited into that beautiful, overwhelming mysterious and glorious relationship and that's why father when son comes and identifies with sinners in baptism which points ultimately to the death burial and resurrection of the son overflows with joy that this plan from eternity past first peter says is now about to be fulfilled so at that time verse 9 says this beautiful statement over the son my son who i love with whom i am well pleased jesus in his baptism identifies with sinners now verses 12 through 13 then say this at once the idea is immediately without delay after his baptism in this beautiful picture it moves into a dark scene. He goes out into the wilderness, which as you read through the Gospels, the wilderness, Old and New Testament, is a foreboding place. It's a forbidden place. It's often thought of as God forsaken. It's a place of testing for the nation of Israel. It's a, it's a difficult place. The text give us, gives us very minimal details about the temptation of Christ. It doesn't even tell us that he passes the test 100% fully. Doesn't even tell us that. Why? Because central to this text is that in the temptation of Christ, he is distinguished from us. Right? The first Adam in a garden fails at a tree. In the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he succeeds at a tree for our saving. Okay, so that is, in, in a sense, the, the essence of the gospel starts to emerge that in this struggle in the wilderness, 40 days being tempted, Jesus comes out of that as the pure son of God, untarnished by the sin that harms and damages our lives and our society. He stands out unique and is distinguished from us in this proving ground. The text says that Satan was there and that wild animals were there. The idea of wild animals is, is, is probably tied to something that was going on as the Gospel of Mark was being written under Nero. Christians were being thrown to wild animals because of their faith in Christ. 
martyred, killed. And Jesus Christ is in a similar context of suffering. He wants them to know that he understands that circumstance fully. And that in that test, he passes with flying colors. Now, as this verse draws to an end, it says, he was with wild animals and angels attended him. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. Okay, but I just want to just make the note that there was a supernatural or divine intervention in the life of the Son, similar to what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus passes this test. And he passes that test in the Garden of Gethsemane as well. In this text, he identifies with us in temptation, but is distinguished from us in his full obedience. So Hebrews 4 will say this. It will say, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted like us, yet distinguished from us without sin. Okay? And what this portion of the text is doing, it is aiming to identify the unique character of Christ as utterly and completely holy. And in that sense, he is distinguished from us. And what the text is seeking to do is to, is to create distance between us and Christ so that we understand that we are not like him but desperately need him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, He, God, made Jesus the Son sin for us, the one who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. So in his temptation, Christ passes the test, is, 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 is reckoned to be righteous based not only on his eternal status, but also on his response to sinful temptation. So he not only has the status, he also has the performance that says he is in fact the sinless one. And that begins to prepare us for an understanding of the cross work of Christ. Now, some have said this. Some have asked the question, if Jesus Christ was God and could not sin, how was the temptation or the test valid? Okay, it's a fair question. If Christ couldn't sin, then in what sense is his temptation a valid temptation if he could not fail? Okay, so let me, I'll give you a simple illustration from when we did this building. Okay, this building has a sprinkler system in it. There are literally hundreds of joints. They have pipe dope and tape. All right, and then those things are threaded together and they create a seal. Okay, that whole system in this building stands at what we call a static pressure of 120 pounds PSI. Okay, so pounds per square inch. 120, 120 pounds. So if you broke off something there, you would get a, a hissing, gushing sound of pressure. Okay? Now, after we got done working on the sprinkler system, we were told that we had to put the whole system under what's called a hydrostatic or water stationary test at 220 pounds. Okay? And if you know anything about air pressure, that's a terrifying number if something goes wrong. Okay? Here's what happened. We had, one, apart from one cracked elbow in the building, and apart from one leaky sprinkler head right in that hallway over there, 
Every other joint passed the test. Was the test valid if the joint couldn't fail? Understand the question? Here's the truth. The te- everything was subjected to 220 pounds. Everything passed the test because the joints had integrity. Right? They were valid, strong connections. The ones that do not pass the test lacked integrity. Okay? So, so just because a joint can't fail because it is done properly doesn't make the 220 pounds of pressure in that. It doesn't weaken it. The test is equally valid. The same is true for Christ. The first Adam in the Garden of Eden faced the test and failed. The second Adam in the Garden faces the test and succeeds. And faces the test here and in other places. The purpose of those testings is to distinguish Jesus Christ from us. Now, verses 14 and following then are interesting. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, what you find in verses 14 and 15 is the commencement of Jesus' public ministry. Okay? He, he, he's, he's going from that season of baptism, from the season of testing, a proven, qualified redeemer. And now he moves out into the world to begin to draw together a group of individuals through him, whom he will turn the world upside down and proclaim the good news. So the text says first in verse 14, Jesus came proclaiming. And his statement is this, the time has come. Okay, meaning the season for those that heard him to respond to the call of God has come. And central to this text is a message of good news. It is a message of hope for a sin-darkened world. And as, as I studied through this, and as I looked at this very beautiful statement, he came proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. That as you read through that, you find certainly an acknowledgement of the need for repentance and change, but you also find in that same calling a statement of great hope. And I thought as I thought about the world that I live in, how the gospel of Christ is the most relevant and beautiful and needed message for a world that is so divided like the world that you and I live in. And I thought how beautiful it would be if the world that we live in became conscious of their need of the good news and experienced the radical life change that Jesus Christ calls for here. Verses 14 and 15, he does not call us to reformation, but he calls us to be changed by God himself. Repentance can be better translated with the word conversion. It it talks about a radical change of life direction. So Jesus is saying you need a radical, a supernatural transformation of heart. Later, Jesus will use the term, you need to be born again. You need to be transformed from above. He does not call to reformation, but to be changed by God. 
He calls for a radical change of direction, not feeling badly, not admitting mistakes, but a sincere confession of rebellion and a full surrender worked down in a lifetime of following Jesus. That's what he calls for. And that call is, 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 is broad, it's powerful, but it's also full of promise. It doesn't call us to change ourselves. It calls us to come to God, to repent and believe and experience a transformation by the indwelling work of the Spirit of God. That is hopeful. In other words, our hope for transformation in the context of our personal lives, in our church life, in our culture, our hope is not rooted in the goodness of people. It's rooted in the goodness of God and in the power of the gospel that can utterly change and transform us. So then we move to verses 16 through 20. So John's put in prison, and there's a bit of a warning there. Jesus is tempted. There's a bit of a warning there about this idea of following after God. Jesus goes into Galilee. He's proclaiming, and as he's walking along, he begins to assemble his group of 12. So verse 16 says this. It says, as he walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. They were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and followed him. So we move from Jesus identifying with us, we move from Jesus distinguished from us, to Jesus' call to us. And the disciples in this context are held up as, if you will, models of early disciples, right? They're early Christ followers. And this text is just going to point out a couple simple things about them laid against the foil of Jesus and John's experience as well. So I want you to notice, first of all, the call of Christ on these men. It is bold. It is categoric. It is, depending on how you see Jesus, it is presumptuous. Because come follow me indicates leave everything behind And I am inviting you into a brand new life. Now, we know that the disciples respond at once. Both both texts use the same sense of terminology that the response of these fishermen when they hear the call of Christ is rather immediate and shocking. So the question is, why do you think, if this is their first encounter with Christ, then why such a response? And the answer is, I don't think that this is their first encounter with Christ. I think if you go to the Gospel of Luke, you find in chapters 1 through 3 that Christ is already active in ministry, and I think this comes up in Luke in chapter 4. So it's very likely that Jesus has been ministering at some level, some miracles have been performed in the area of Galilee, and they were aware of those miracles and of the supernatural nature of them. They had heard, presumably, some of the teaching of Christ. And so when Christ comes to a slightly informed audience and speaks to them, they have an understanding of who he is. And when Christ calls, the only appropriate response is at once. 
immediately with full sacrifice. I mean, this text is very, very clear. When he calls them, they leave their stable lives. They leave their family ties. They leave their business environment, which was crucial in, a, in the ancient world. They paid a price to say yes to Jesus. Which leads to the second part of my title for the sermon today. There is no Christ following without cost counting. Right, The nature of discipleship is a, a commitment to follow after and imitate the life of the master. And these disciples leave their old life behind in a categoric way. And I remember when God finally got a hold of my stubborn heart and broke my reluctance to go into ministry and drew me out of my, my, my weird life, <laughs> successful and unhappy. He knocked on the door of my heart and made it clear that this was his calling. And the relief of saying yes to God was overwhelming. And for these men, Christ comes and Christ calls and they immediately let go of everything and follow Christ. There was no negotiating, there was no hesitation. Because all that Jesus required was surrender. And the call that he gives to them is fascinating. Notice how he says this. Verse 17. Come follow me, Jesus said. And I will send you out to fish for people. Here's here's the way. Just in my notes, here's the way I said this. They sought fish for personal, temporary benefit. And Jesus says to them now, seek men for their eternal benefit. It's fascinating, isn't it? A move from a temporary commitment to an eternal commitment. Folks, I'm going to say this. No matter what your calling is in life, this aspect of Jesus' life moves into all of our lives. That all of us, as God's followers as followers of Christ, redeemed followers of Christ, all of us should be pursuing a life of radical and full commitment to the calling of God and the sharing of the good news of Christ. Folks, look, we do live in a difficult time, and and I've been amongst the complainers, I'm sure, at some point along the way. But I hope for us, this urgency, this message that Christ called these disciples to, and they immediately went. I pray that that call begins to take hold in our lives and begins to transform how we live our lives. Because we have a message of hope. And for a world that is broken, there is nothing, there is nothing like the gospel of Christ to bring unity in a divided context. Nothing like it. Because it doesn't place demands on people. It forgives people. It doesn't cancel them. It redeems them. And brings them back into harmony, into relationship. Jesus is calling his disciples to go, to leave everything, and to seek the eternal benefit of others rather than personal benefit. So their following requires an immediate sacrifice, right? But their following also requires at some level suffering. 
Okay, and this is why probably sometimes we back away. If I wanted to look better as, as a result of working out at the gym, I would go more regularly and I would work at it harder. But I don't want that goal. Not enough. Okay? It's the sacrifice that Christ requires, I think, that often causes us to struggle. But even more, I think, it can be the suffering that we may experience as believers faithful to God that causes us to pull up at times from what God wants from us. Now, I, in this text, you'll see that there is the calling of John the Baptist right at the beginning of the chapter. John is called, and verse 14 says, after John was put in prison. So John is called. John obeys the call of God fully at great risk, speaks truth to power, ends up in prison, and ends up with his head cut off. There's something about that that is ominous and foreboding for the disciples. The quintessential Christ follower who announced the initiation of his public ministry, who oversaw the inaugural event, is in prison and will die. So the call of Christ always involves sacrifice. And there are many times where it will involve suffering. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is called. He is commissioned. And immediately he's led out into the wilderness and is tempted, tested, tried, and later at the cross suffers. Folks, listen. There is a call to discipleship. The question is, are you ready to follow Jesus? I want to say yes, but I need to step back and count the cost. Right? Because Jesus said, you can't come after me unless you count the cost. And then pay the price. And then follow me. So, so, so this text gives us hints through the prototypical Lord and through the John the Baptist, the prototypical disciple, gives us hints that in the process of Christ following, there may be suffering. Jesus says to his disciples in John 15... A servant is not above his master. If they did this to me, suffering, criticism, persecution, they'll do it to you. Okay, so there is an indication that in this path of Christ following, which required sacrifice strongly at the beginning, that in the working out of it, there will be seasons of suffering. And I need to, I need to reckon with that. If I am going to move through faithful to the end. Now, I'm going to acknowledge very simply that the intensity of that suffering varies from place to place. If you look at the world that we live in, if you talk to the Hortons or talk to our brother Victor John in India or Arusha, his sister, you will find that there is much more intense seasons or there are much more intense seasons of suffering in certain areas. God's call to us is to be ready for whatever may come and to be willing to pay whatever price is required in sacrifice and suffering so that we can faithfully and fully serve God's purposes. In verse 13 it says, Jesus was with the wild animals being tempted in the desert and angels attended him. Let me just draw this down in a couple quick applications. Remember that testing and supernatural help 
always live in close proximity. Okay? Jesus is there being tested in faithfulness to his father, almost a follower of his father in that setting. And when he is tested, he is divinely supported. It happens here, and it happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. That as Jesus faces those most intense moments of demand, of temptation to give up, he cries out to Father, and angels attend to him in his human nature. It's a beautiful picture. So if you're going through a season of anticipated suffering, here's what you need to remember. That as you step forward in obedience to what God wants, remember that the suffering that you fear and the supernatural aid of God are in close proximity. He promises that to us. It's also seen in Mark chapter 1, verse 8, right? Where John says of Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, that baptism by the Spirit is a baptism in power, which is manifested as you read through the rest of the, God, of the book of Acts. You will find it repeatedly as a filling of disciples, filling of Christ's followers in seasons of suffering as they proclaim the good news of Christ. That as they step out and do that and anticipate struggle, there is a divine assist a supernatural aid that comes to their side and manifests in greater and more powerful ways. To the degree at times that those who are observing the followers of Christ, namely Stephen, see, literally see, the glory of God in their lives. May God do that for us. When we anticipate the sacrifice and suffering of Christ's following, may we remember that he he identifies with us. He's different than us, able to pay for our sin at Calvary's cross. And he comes along our side by the work of the Spirit to enable us in seasons of suffering. This text is also hopeful because in it we see that Jesus expands his ministry through average, surrendered, and faithful people. Folks, I want to tell you something. You look at the list of the names of the disciples. You look at the people that Jesus chose. It is downright encouraging. Okay? He did not choose many mighty. Why? He doesn't need that. You know what he needs? He needs committed, devoted, average people who are surrendered with an understanding that it requires suffering and sacrifice. And he, he, he transforms by the Spirit. He indwells by the Spirit. He fills with the Spirit, verse 8 says. To enable us to do things that we cannot do on our own. So when it is done, the glory goes to God. He didn't choose highly qualified. He chose fishermen. I have to assume that they were the average people of their day. They were the blue-collar people of their day that God designed to use to turn the world upside down. For me, that is always a hopeful statement. Our success in discipleship, in, in saying, yes, I'm ready to follow, our success is dependent upon God's personal presence. That's why Jesus says to us, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I won't abandon you. 
I'm right there. I know what's going on. I understand fully. He demonstrated that, that to them a number of times through the Gospels. I'm for you, he's saying. It's fascinating to me that the Apostle Paul will later say, what I want to hear from God is well done, good and faithful servant. Because the echo for me, the echo for me is that the baptism of Jesus, when Father over his son says, well done. With you I am well pleased. And the Apostle Paul can later say, that's what I'm living for. I'm living for moving into that ultimate heavenly community with God when this temporary life of suffering and sacrifice ends, I would be welcomed into his presence. And what Paul, Paul said, I long, I want, simply to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. May God help us as we walk this road to remember also that we do it in community. It's interesting in this text that Jesus does not call one disciple. In both cases, he calls two. And he brings them together to show them the strength. They, they're, what are they? They're the early church. They're the church, if you will, in embryonic form, which will be birthed in Acts chapter 2 and will go out to change the world. But the thing that's crucial to this to this account for me from the relational side is that all of the calling is in community. The Godhead is in community. We are called to live in the context of community for the glory of God. So may God help us to realize that he has called us to live together. A life of sacrifice, a life of suffering, a life of following Jesus. I want to encourage you this morning to count the cost. Think it through. Hear the call of Christ. Follow me. And respond with an affirmative yes. With a full, clear understanding of all that that requires. So that you can follow him faithfully and fully to the end. You know, when I think of my personal story, my personal walk. I think back to when I was 21 years old in a three-year pattern of simply God ignoring, which is God belittling. Just ignoring. Knowing, knowing clearly what he wanted. And simply saying, no. I like my life. I want you to remember that moments of hesitation can quickly turn into years of wasted time. Folks, here's what I thought. I'm just, I'm, I, I, I don't even know what I was thinking. I, I, I just, it wasn't until the day that I realized, you're saying no to God. You're rebelling against his call and plan for your life. And you have no right to do that. And I realized I had wasted three years of my life pursuing what I wanted, which is always a waste of time. But it started with something very small for me. It started with an understanding of call, of God on my life, and me just ignoring it. When Jesus called the disciples, the fishermen in the boat, there was no hesitation. There was cost counting, and they gave it up. 
And there was following in spite of sacrifice and suffering. And they were used powerfully for the glory of God. May God help us to, to, to listen to God today. Listen to the voice of the Spirit today. Is he pointing you in a specific direction of obedience where you've been resisting? And perhaps that resistance has turned into years of wasted time. You know what you can do? You can reverse course. Repent and believe the gospel. Perhaps you've been hearing the call of God on your life to come and know him as your Lord and Savior. And you've been resisting because you don't want to suffer and you don't want sacrifice. You're going to a place of utter despair and permanent loss. If today you hear his voice, the Bible says this. Don't harden your heart. Don't rebel. Turn to him. Obey him. Follow him. And in this text, to me, the, the, the indication of joy is that the moment when Jesus begins his public move towards the cross, towards sacrifice and suffering, there is an overwhelming picture of joy that comes into that sacrificial path of obedience. Father, pours out affection, love, and affirmation. I want that. I pray that you want that in your life as well. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you today for your word, which is indeed powerful and life-changing. God, how we need to count the cost and to make the right choice to follow Jesus. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who does not know you as Lord and Savior, oh God, I pray that they would see today that the sinless Son of God hung in their place on Calvary's cross, bore the full consequence of their sin, and offers them hope of forgiveness and freedom in Christ. And Lord, if there's a brother or sister here this morning who has been wrestling with suffering and sacrifice and has been backing away from what they know God wants in their life. Father, I pray today that you would draw them. You would open their eyes to see that any sacrifice for Christ is well worth the cost. And that they would, that we would as a church family, God, live to hear, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. God, forgive our reluctance. Help us to go this week into our community, into our families, proclaiming and sharing and living the good news of the gospel of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. God bless you as you go.